All right, we're going to be we're going to be jumping around a little bit here at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> so we've been going through the Old Testament. Uh, if you haven't been here in a little while, we've covered a fair bit of ground. We are going to be talking about David this morning, uh, and the last person we talked about was Moses. A lot happens between Moses and David, so allow me to just kind of sum that up as best as I can. So when last we left the Israelites, they were in the wilderness at Sinai. They had just met with God, and this was a huge event. This was um, unlike anything that they had ever experienced, unlike anything that God had ever done in history up to that point. And he was introducing himself to the Israelites, calling them out of Egypt and making them a people where before they were just, they were slaves, they had a common ancestry, but nothing really that separated them from the rest of the nations. They were under, um, under the Egyptians. So God takes them out, and he says, come with me, and he introduces himself, gives them a law, makes them a nation. And he says, we are going to go take the land that I promised to Abraham. So the things that he promised to Abraham a long time ago, he's going to be uh, faithful to those promises. So he leads them out from that wilderness, takes them to Canaan. And they take a census uh, at the beginning of Numbers. Numbers 1, they take a census of all the war-eligible men as they prepare for war against the inhabitants of Canaan. And then God leads them to Canaan to spy out the land. And they, they, they gather uh, men from every tribe. And they go and they look around and they see that things are good there. There is fruit there. The land looks wonderful to a bunch of people who have been out in the wilderness for a long time, um, and everything looks good, but there's a problem in their eyes. Uh, in Numbers 14, you can read about this, they, or Numbers 13 and 14, uh, they go out and they send men over there, and everything looks good, but there are these giants in the land. And so when they see them, they become more fearful of the giants than of God, which is weird, and they cower before them. And it's, I think that it's worth reading this part. It's very important to the, the history. So I'm going to turn to Numbers 14 and just read a little section from there and just read their response. So God's done all these amazing things, right? He's, he's just overthrown the Egyptians, which at that point, the Egyptians were the most powerful nation in the entire world. And God didn't, uh, didn't have a problem with that. But when he says, go and we're going to take over this other land... Uh, they just freak out and say, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And they focus on themselves to the point that they no longer seek God. So their response in uh, Numbers 14, and I'm going to read 1 through 4, I think, here. All the, all the congregation raised a loud cry. The people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died, had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So just faithlessness uh, towards this God who has done amazing things toward, for them. And, and God, again, wants to wipe them out. But Moses intercedes for them, and then God relents. He does not wipe them out, but he does uh, judge them. So if you read verses 20 and on in 14, 
Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the, the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went." And his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know that the land, they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. So... Not good. They end up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. He says a couple of verses later down there that they had, um, he was going to repay them justly. So uh, for the 40 days that they had been disobedient, he was going to put them in the wilderness for 40 years and they were all going to die off. So numbers is pretty dramatic. There's a lot of death in numbers because it's just a a huge group of people, two million people wandering around in the wilderness, essentially just waiting to die. And and it's 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 a mess. It's a mess. But God leads Israel back to Canaan after 40 years in the wilderness, and they are ordered to destroy all the inhabitants. Uh, This is a this is a problem for a lot of people. Um, God does give his reason for why, why they are going to destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan in Deuteronomy 7, though. So they're coming back, and they're going to they're gonna have this land, but there's a bunch of people living there. And so they are going to take it from them. And the people that are living there right now are evil. They, they worship heathen gods, and they do so with rituals that are just like totally obscene. And, and are just abhorrent to God. So he says to these people, you're going to go and you're going to take the land from these people, but you're going to have to fight and you're going to have to kill everybody in the land. And God gives his reasons in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 8. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is Moses speaking to them before he dies. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, it's not because they're anything special. It's because God is doing something. And he says there that all of these, all of these people in this land are idol worshippers. They're doing evil things in the sight of God. So they are going to be judgment against these people. So he says, go in and wipe it out entirely. So Moses is not allowed to enter into the land. He disobeys God. And God tells him, you cannot go, but I'll allow you to see it. So Moses dies on this mountain looking out over all the land that God had promised to give them, but he never gets to enter into it because he also disobeyed God. So all of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, die in the wilderness. And then they go, and Joshua succeeds him. He becomes the leader. And you can read in the book of Joshua about everything that he did. They initially had uh, a successful conquest. They went in and defeated 31 different kings in 31 different regions. And things are going really well. And while Joshua is over them, they are following God. They are, they are obeying the law. They are seeking God in all, in all kinds of different matters. A couple hiccups. But things go overwhelmingly well. Because God is with them. So, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua says, the job's not done. It, he's been fighting for 40 years, which is crazy. Joshua's been fighting for 40 years taking over all this land, and there's still a lot left. And Joshua says, go and take the rest. I'm going to die, but you have to go and take the rest. God has already promised it to you. So he dies, and things go downhill pretty fast. You read in Judges that they were not careful to do all that God had said to them. You can read in Judges 2, They essentially leave a bunch of people behind. They don't kill all the Canaanites. They, they take some of their stuff. They, uh, they keep some of the people and say, you're going to be our slaves. You're going to work for us now. And so they, they don't do what God tells them to do. So in Judges 2, verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So, they have no leader at this point in time. They have disobeyed God, and now they've been cursed to not fully inherit the promises that, that God had been given, at least not this generation. So, he says, because you have been disobedient, because you haven't listened to me, I'm going to make these people a thorn in your side. You get a nice summary of the book of Judges right there in chapter 2. Um... 
It says that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 11, they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. So they start worshiping these other gods. And then in verse 16, here's, it presents the cycle of Judges. So if you just want like a summary of what happens in Judges, then you can read uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. And it says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the, their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. So... Things are not going well. Again, apart from the direct intervention of God, things just kind of trend in the wrong direction. And I think we've, we've seen that like every week that I've been up here anyway. Uh, we went from Adam and then things went downhill. God intervened and saved Noah. Things go downhill. God intervened and, and brings Abraham out, and renames him, makes him a promise. So good things happen. Things go downhill. They go to Egypt. God intervenes and brings them up out of Egypt, saves them, does amazing things. But then as time goes on, things go downhill. They stop listening. So there's the, And now in Judges, God raises up these leaders to fight for them. And then as soon as things are going well, they say, okay, well, we don't need God anymore. Things are cool. And things go downhill. So if you, I hope that's an obvious pattern that when, when we're left alone to do whatever we want to do, things don't go well at all. Things go very, very poorly. So a new disobedient generation comes up in, in, in Israel, and evil grows. The events, some of the events of Judges are just shockingly horrible. Um, one of the, the, the event at the end of Judges is probably one of the most horrible things in all the Bible. Um, and Israel all but destroys one of its own tribes in a civil war because of this horrible thing that this city does. And things are not going well. And so at the end of Judges, it sums up, you can read right the last verse, chapter 21 in Judges, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so things are getting worse and worse. So now we're going to look into Samuel. Samuel's mother was barren, and she pleads before God, please give me a child. If you do, I'll devote him to, to you, God. I'll, I'll, let him, I'll bring him to the temple and, and devote him to, to working there for you, and, and, and he can work with the priests and, and do, uh, do the work of a priest. And God grants her request and then she takes him there when he's like, I can't remember how old, three years old, I think. 
something really young, she, she takes him to the temple and says, go and serve with the priest. So he stays there with them. And, and he eventually becomes the priest, the judge over all of Israel. And things are well with Samuel. It says that the Spirit of the Lord is with him. So he judges rightly, and he follows after God. And this is, this is one of those men that God has raised up to do good things among the Israelites. He is a Nazarite, a priest, a prophet, and a judge. Things are going well. And we're going to get into a little bit more detail here. Turn to chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. So God has raised up Samuel to judge the people. And, and that essentially means that he is, he's a mediator. As a judge, as a priest, he's a mediator for the people. And as of right now, they are a theocracy. don't know if you've ever heard that term. Theocracy means that they are governed by God. They follow after God. I mean, not really well, as we've seen. But as of right now, their, their primary authority is God. And they are tired of that. They are living in this land where they've adopted all the practices of all these other people, so why not adopt their form of government? They've adopted the religion, they've adopted the practices, they've married with their family, families in this foreign land, and now they start looking at all these other kingdoms around them, and they say, you know what? We noticed all these other guys have kings. We don't have a king. All we've got is old Samuel serving at the temple and not really doing much for us. At least that's what they think. So... They, they go to Samuel, and he is, he's old. We can read in, in 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They were greedy. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods... So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is crazy, right? That that the God who took a bunch of slaves and made a nation out of them and showed amazing power over creation. Like he clearly demonstrated that he was king over all creation through these, these... cataclysmic events that he orchestrated, turning all of the water in a region to blood, bringing darkness upon the land, sending angels to kill the firstborn of all these people, stopping sea waters up into walls so that these people could walk through, causing walls of cities to fall down in front of them just because they yelled at it. Like, God has done incredible, incredible things. And yet, they have this incredible, incredible stubbornness. And you look at them and you say, you know, I, with us sitting here and just reading about all these things, we say, how stupid are these people 
that have seen these things and have rejected God. You see the pattern. The only time anything good happens is when God does something. And when these people are allowed to do what they want to do, things just go horribly. So, why would God, why would God give in to this demand? Why would He allow this to happen? Why would He allow them to have their way? To, because up until this point, He has killed a lot of people whenever they have come to Him with something like this. Whenever they've tried to go after other gods, whenever they've tried to become more like the other nations, he has judged them, usually by killing thousands of people. But this, at this point, he says, they've rejected me, but I'm going to give them a king. Because it's part of the plan. Moses talked about this back in De- Deuteronomy 17. We're talking like several generations ago now. Moses knew that this was going to happen. God let Moses know that this is going to happen. You can read about it back there. It says that when they get into that land, they're going to look around and they're going to see how all these other people have a king and they're going to say, give us a king. And we're going to give you a king. So this is part of God's plan that they should have a king. But what they don't see is that he is their king. So they go... And they choose a man. Actually, God points out this man, Saul. And he pleases the people. He is a handsome guy. He is taller than everybody else. He's physically fit. And, and that's what you want of a king back then. Like kings, we have kings now that mostly sit behind desks and tell other people to go to war. That's not how it worked back then. The kings back then went to war. So you wanted somebody who looked like he belonged in a war. So this guy looked like he belonged in a war. And, and it pleased the people. He came up, and the Spirit of the Lord inhabits him. And, and while that is the case, things go well. Saul, for a while, looks like a good king. He protects them from their enemies. He listens to the voice of Samuel. Things are going well, but it doesn't take too long for him to disobey God as well. At one point, he's continuing this conquest... And, and God says, devote all these things to destruction. And just like the people before him, he, he doesn't listen. He keeps some of the stuff. Says, hey, this is good stuff. Let's, uh, let's, let's kill all the bad stuff, keep the good stuff. And uh, while we're at it, let's go ahead and make sacrifices for all the people. And that's, that was not his job to go up in front of God and to make sacrifices for the people. And he disobeys God in a number of ways. And so God, um, God rejects him as king. First Samuel 15, you can read about that. And so he's not king for long before God says, Saul cannot, Saul's not the guy. Saul cannot be king over Israel. So God goes and chooses another. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Notice that wording. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. 
The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and he went to Bethlehem. So he goes to this house of Jesse and he sees he's got many sons. And, and just like Saul, he looks at some of them and then he says, wow, some of these guys look like kings. But God is talking to him the whole time and he says, I'll tell you when he's here. I'll tell you when he's here. So just go by one by one and examine each one of them. So he's looking at each one of these guys and he's saying, this guy looks like a king. Good pick, God. And God said, mm, that's not him. So he goes one by one through all these sons until there's none left. And he says, is that it? And Jesse has one more son who apparently is an afterthought. Or maybe it's just like, it's, it's unlikely he's going to choose the, the weakest, youngest one. So let him like guard the sheep while these guys come in and do the important stuff. So he's out in the field doing work. And, and, and he says, well, call him in here. And as soon as he comes in, God says, that's the one. And he says, I don't, I don't look at the outward appearance of all these people. <laughs> you look at Saul. He, was an amazing, he, he looked like an awesome king. But he's not my king. So he says, I've examined his heart, and he will be king. So Samuel anoints him there. While Saul is still king, and this becomes a problem, because Saul hears about it and is not happy whatsoever. Um, David comes and makes a name for himself. When the, whole when the whole army is still backing down and afraid to fight the Philistines at this point in time, and, and they're still disobeying God, saying, how in the world are we going to win another battle? David comes up, and he, he stands up, not for himself. He doesn't stand up and say, listen, I've got what it takes to lead this people. He says, the Philistines are coming here, and they're blaspheming the name of God, and they're trampling on the name of God. And we as a people, as God's people... We cannot have that. So he says he's going to fight for the name of God, in the power of God. Not for himself, not, not because he knows he's going to be king, as a way to become king, but as a way to be faithful. When all these other people were running away, he steps up by himself. And because of his faith in God... He overcomes this massive man, this champion, Goliath, who says he's like nine feet tall and carries this armor that's like hundreds of pounds. He's like a massive guy, but he overcomes him. And, and Saul is jealous now because everybody looks at David and says, he's the guy we need. So he tries to kill him, but David is patient. And it's interesting uh, I read through all of this, and later on it's going to be said that David was a man of war. He was a man who had blood on his hands. He was a warrior. He was a killer. But it's interesting that as you read through First and Second Samuel, parts of Kings, Samuel, uh, David really does not take any pleasure in killing anybody. Like, he has multiple opportunities to go after his enemies. And he doesn't do it. 
including Saul, who God has rejected as king. David has anointed, or God has anointed David as king now, and you would think he has every right to take for himself this kingship. But, but David does not. He has mercy on Saul. And, and you see this over and over. David has mercy on a lot of people who come up against him. One of the really cool things that you see about David is that, for the most part, he is not interested in taking what God has not given to him. And so he shows himself as faithful and listens to the word of God when all of his brothers around him are not listening to the word of God. So, he eventually becomes king over Israel. And he continues in war, continues in battle, continues the conquest, takes over most of the land. And now things really start to pick up. Things are going well now. It says that God's spirit is with David, and wherever he went, he won in battle. And so now they've conquered just about all of the land that they were supposed to have conquered. And he's sitting in Jerusalem, and things are going well. And now for the first time in decades, many, many decades, there is peace. And he sits down and he says, God has done this. And he looks out and he wonders, how can I respond? How can I be faithful to everything that God has done to us? If you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. One thing that was surprising to me, and maybe this was just coming out of having uh, talked about Moses. With several of the other patriarchs, the other guys in Israel, throughout history, there were more direct interactions with God than I thought. With David, there really aren't that many direct interactions with God. This is one of the few. He looks out, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan, who was the prophet at the time, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word? With any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you. He shall come from your own, your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So, David does two good things in response in the midst of this interaction that I think is noteworthy that that maybe we need to take note of. Um, First of all, he does what the rest of the nation would not do and just right off the bat recognizes all these good things that have happened have happened because God has done them for us. And so he responds by saying, how can I serve God? And so that is a good response on his part. He recognizes that God is in charge and that he needs God. They need God. Like Moses said, we can't, apart from the presence of God, we go in vain. He's saying the same thing. Apart from the presence of God, this is all in vain. And so he responds and wants to worship God and do something for God. And I think that that's noteworthy for us. We need to be able to do the same thing to say, you know, the only good thing that I really have, the only good things that I have, have been given to me by God. And, show, and so we ought to respond the same way and say, how, how can I respond faithfully? How can I serve God? He comes up with this idea that he's going to build God a house. But God says, no, you're not going to be the one to do that. Your sons will do that. And God is responsive, or, or David is responsive to that. He, even though he has enthusiasm and he wants to serve God, And he says, here, I'll do this thing for you, God. God says, no, you won't. He is faithful in that also and says, okay, I'll serve God this way. Even though he wants, his desire is to build this house. And he continues on through through the rest of his life making preparations. So he's like, I can't build the house, but I can get ready. And And he does all these things. And... Those two things are noteworthy. Those are things that I think that we can take from this. But the more important part of this is, is what God does. Because of David's faithfulness, he says, your kingdom will be established forever. What this means is, is that the line of David will perpetuate throughout history and will not fail. There will be times when there will not be a king over Israel. But ultimately, this points down the line to Christ. And so, God does, again, what men could not do. He built, David wanted to build a temporary house, a house of cedar. But God says, how are you going to build a house for an infinite, eternal being? I will build a house and it will be established forever. 
but I will, I will use you as my servant. Peter talks about this later in Acts 2 and connects the dots here between these two. So if you turn to Acts 2. Verse 29, Peter says, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, after Jesus has gone up to heaven, he's preaching to the Israelites, and he says in Acts 2, verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he connects directly David and Jesus and says that Jesus was the descendant of David, promised by God, prophesied through the mouth of David that he would come. And now Christ is the fulfillment. Here's the interesting thing that I think connects uh, 1 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 7 and us. So the people rejected God as their king. And God said, I am going to give you a king who will reign over you. So for us, seeing this now, that this promise given to David was Jesus. What's interesting is that when we look at 1 Samuel 8, We say, wow, those people are stupid. And they are. They're stupid. Because they see everything that God does, and they they refuse Him. But the exact same thing happens to Christ when He comes. And when Paul, or Paul, when Peter here speaks in this sermon, he speaks to humanity. Like, he's obviously speaking to Israel, but he speaks to humanity. That includes us. So Jesus comes, and he says, I am king, I am Lord, I and the Father are one. Mankind looks on Jesus and rejects him, and says, no, and ultimately puts him to death. And so the sin that we see in 1 Samuel 8, when we look at them and say, wow, they're so stupid, that's us, because Christ comes who was the fulfillment of all those things, and he comes at great cost to himself and does amazing things, miraculous things for us. And we see it, and we say, he's not my king. But God says, he is. He is your king forever. And so when we see Christ now, our response should be, unlike the Israelites' response, we should see him and say, indeed, God is my king, and indeed, he has sent Christ, and indeed, he has done amazing things, amazing things, to bring me up, when before, we were not a people. Right? 
God separated the, the Israelites from the Egyptians and made them somebody. And through Christ, He does the same thing with us. He says, you were not a people, but now you are a people because Christ is coming to save you from yourself. And so the only right response for us is to bow before this King. And in fact, it will happen whether you do it now or later. Because in Philippians 2, Paul talks about Christ being King And he says, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, God has highly exalted him, Christ, and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So whether now or later, everyone will fall before God and will admit that Christ is King. And so our response should be to go ahead and kneel in faithfulness. Let's pray.